0: Hey friends, we've got an exciting program that I want to share with you, our upcoming Climate Leadership Accelerator into the arena. It's designed for those of us who feel compelled to influence climate leadership in our organizations and communities. In the program, you'll deepen your understanding of the systems operating within the climate crisis and connect with an incredible network of leaders, challenge your own assumptions and develop a hopeful framework for action. So head to smallgiants.com.au slash into the arena to learn more and apply.
1: The power to create a better world for future generations is in our hands. Collectively reinvesting money into clean and sustainable companies is one way we can get there. It ensures money is driving a better future. Make your money matter at (laughs) australianethical.com.au. Hi friends! A very happy new year to you all. I hope you're dosing up on R and R right now, perhaps catching up on some of your favourite long reads and podcasts, stretching out time as much as you can. Here's one for you. It's an oldie but a goodie. Our conversation with the one and only Robin Davidson. Robin is best known as the Camel Lady, a reference to her journey as a young woman crossing the Australian desert with four camels and her dog in 1977. These days, Robin feels like a different person, yet there is one quality that has remained a constant in her life, her ability to adapt to change. This conversation took place in November 2017 with our publisher, Barry Liberman.
0: Hi, everyone. It's very unusual for us to have champagne on stage. (laughs) Speak for yourself. (laughs) But there is a reason, and the reason is that we're very lucky tonight to have Robin here with us on her birthday. Um, yay! This is a pinch me moment for me. I was telling Robin I'm serious groupie and even asked Robin to sign my copy of Tracks before. And tonight it's an honour for me and tonight is all about adaptability and surrender and the tension between our desire for freedom and the nomadic lifestyle and what our society expects from us in our day-to-day. And I feel being a young woman and I was searching for my own place in the world and my own freedom, there was Lawrence of Arabia and then there was you.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Me and Lawrence.
0: Yeah. You're cooler. So many people in this room would know you as the camel lady, the woman that crossed the desert Mm. with four camels and a dog in 1977 but that was just one chapter in an extraordinary life that you've lived. In what ways are you the same as that young woman who crossed the desert all those years ago?
2: Oh, well, I'm completely different, I think. And I look back at her and I'm not quite sure who she is. I mean, I like her and I admire her. She's sort of like a a favourite niece or something. (laughs) But I think, what a crazy
0: kid. What did she think she was doing?
2: <laughs> it's very hard, actually, to honestly and truthfully recall who that young woman was because so many avatars have come up in the years between around that decision that I made so many years ago. The first, of course, was the success of the journey itself, which suddenly made this creature called the Camel Lady, and she didn't seem to have much to do with me, but there she was. The second was the artifact of the book. And while, of course, the book is the truest rendition of the journey, it is not the journey. It is an artifact. So that's another kind of something that stands between what actually happened and how I perceive it now. And thirdly, of course, there's been the film, which is another abstraction yet again. So for me personally, it's been a very complicated relationship to that young woman because of these intervening versions, if you like, or avatars. Also, because I hadn't been expecting fame of any kind, I didn't think anyone would be interested. I also had to deal with other people's version of me. And largely what I've been doing for the last 30 years is trying to escape the camel lady. Hmm. And um, now I think, oh, there's worse things to be known as. So I've given
0: in gracefully, I hope. So it's complicated. Like most things. Like most things. So bear with me while I ask you questions that stem from that time. Yes. Becoming a reluctant icon of the nomadic lifestyle. Mm. Many people, like myself, felt freed and feel freed by your story. They find their own capacity for adventure in it. Why do you think that
2: is? It's such a wonderful thing. And again, it seemed to have not all that much to do with me. I know it sounds like a sort of false modesty or something, but it's really what I think. I think quite unbeknownst to me, I hit not just the zeitgeist of the time, but some sort of mythical structure of the journey of overcoming, of growing, all of those things. So in a sense, I think tracts is a sort of mythical structure so that people can take from it in a similar sort of way to how we take from myth and we can use it in our own lives. It seems to be something like that. God knows the book has got legs. It's been going for 30 years and it's really remarkable. I'm always very delighted when fabulous young people like this say they've been moved or have found the book useful. I don't receive it emotionally because it doesn't seem to have anything to do with me. But intellectually, I'm very, very pleased that what I did has proven useful to so many particularly young people.
0: I'm going off reservation here a bit. If you were to talk about the Mm -hmm. journey, what would you say is relevant for you to talk about or feels familiar to you when you reflect back to that? We're calling it an adventure. What would you Mm -hmm. have called it? Well, I never would have
2: used that word. But, you know, it's as good a word as any. It was just something that I wanted to do, that I knew I had to do. I wanted to do something big with my life that would pull me together as an individual because it seemed I was an extremely, I think, extremely inadequate young woman. And so doing something that was so demanding and forced me to grow and grow up and find all these skills and talents that I didn't know I had. And the funny thing is that it worked. It did the trick. Mm. I felt very much at the end of that journey that I had solved some essential problem, if you like, not a psychological problem, I mean a problem of being, an existential problem by what I had done. And it's very hard to describe really what that is, but somehow it worked and I got what I needed from it to evolve onto the next thing. That's my sense of it. The other thing is that each time you look back on your life, you have changed since the last time you looked back on your life. Hmm.
0: So it's all a matter of perspective. So how does the nomadic life, which you have continued to live. Yes. We were talking Mm. just before that you've settled in Victoria for the first time ever.
2: I know, it's pretty weird, isn't
0: it? You know, here I have been
2: espousing nomadism as a good mental structure to have in relation to one's life. But suddenly I find myself with not just a house and a garden, but a tiny flat in St Kilda. And both of them are killing me. (laughs) Look, you know, I have moved around a hell of a lot. Partly that was temperamental. Partly I was just driven by a really profound curiosity about the world. And in a funny sort of way about my own culture, because it wasn't until I could get out of Australia and learn about the rest of the world, did I feel that I had something to test my own inherent beliefs against the cultural baggage that I carried. So I think that sort of travel doesn't just teach you about other places, it teaches you about the stuff you carry around without really understanding that it's not necessarily something you need to keep. I suppose what you learn is what to keep, what to throw away. And of course, for my generation in particular, I think the notion of freedom, the importance of freedom was just everything. And there was a quote that I like very much. It might be my quote, I don't remember. (laughs) (laughs) There's no such thing as too much freedom, only too little courage. It's such a good thing to live by in all areas of life.
0: So in what other ways has the nomadic lifestyle enriched your life or how could it enrich our lives? And what is the relationship between a nomadic life mm. and a meaningful one.
2: Oh, gosh, a nomadic life and a meaningful one. Well, I would imagine you could have a nomadic life and it wasn't very meaningful. I think meaning is something we have to work at all the time. I mean, my view of existence is that it is inherently meaningless and part of our job as human conscious beings <laughs> is to imbue it with meaning of some sort. But, of course, that can take you up some terribly blind alleys The reason I'm fascinated with the idea of how human beings move is that there are certain things that nomadism mitigates against, and that is the accumulation of goods. Mm -hmm. If you're moving all the time, you have to be flexible. You have to be able to adapt to situations that may not suit you or that may confront you or that may challenge all the things you thought you believed in. It turns you into a good diplomat because you're constantly dealing with difference. And in nomadic cultures that I've had anything to do with, it seems to me that they often, not always, but often embody all the humanist values. And I've actually written about that in the Black Ink essay.
0: Do you want to read the section that you had ready for us? Because I think it's pertinent. Yeah, I could do that. The point of this essay
2: was about the relationship between the sorts of values that gather around agriculture and the sorts of values that those values replaced. So there's just a little paragraph on what I thought those values were. What are the qualities that nomadic cultures tend to encourage? And I do say tend here. It seems to me that they are the humanistic virtues. The world is approached as a series of complex interactions rather than simple oppositions. Connecting pathways rather than obstructive walls. Nomads are comfortable with uncertainty and contradiction. They are cosmopolitan in outlook because they have to deal with difference, negotiate difference. They do not focus on long-term goals so much as continually accommodate themselves to change. They are less concerned with the accumulation of wealth and more concerned with the accumulation of knowledge. The territorial personality, opinionated and hard-edged, is not revered. Tolerance, which accommodates itself to things human and changeable, is. There's Aristotelian values of practical wisdom and balance, adaptability, flexibility, mental agility, the ability to cope with flux. These traits shy away from absolutes and strive for an equilibrium that blurs rigid boundaries. And I think that's sort of what we're all trying to get towards. You know, it's in our nature to want to freeze things and solidify things. But the more one can understand that the entire world is nothing but flux, and we are nothing but flux, and the more we can relax into understanding that, I think the better we are as citizens and sort of in relation to ourselves also.
0: How do we stay open and free and nomadic in sensibility when society normalises and expects a particular kind of lifestyle?
2: It's terribly difficult. I mean, it's not something you can just do. You can decide to do and then do. It's a process. And Every day we're confronted with the difficulties of life and having to deal with these very rigid systems that, in a sense, we're trapped inside. But obviously the more we think about it, really deeply think about it and read and talk to each other about it and try to find ways of turning these strict, rigid structures and make them more fluid and more humane, then that's the process, it seems to me. You don't get given it. It's a process, it's a job, it's work.
0: And segue, but not a segue, we were talking Mm. before about how I've been reading the book Sapiens. Yeah, everyone should read Sapiens. Anyone read it here in the audience? Yeah, it's a pretty amazing sort of story of humanity and Mm. how we've moved across continents. And He sees agriculture as a huge
2: mistake
0: or a trap.
2: Humans are very good at doing something that seems to work for now. We're not very good at thinking ahead at the implications. And it's a really wonderful book.
0: We were talking about whether we have to turn back the clock to save ourselves. Like, How do we reach back into ancient cultural knowledge and awareness of how we might be in the world more collaboratively, Mm. more kindly, more respectfully, both to the ecology and Mm. to one another? Do we have to turn back the clock?
2: Well, we can't. There's that. Um, that old <laughs> chestnut. <laughs> That's that. And the last thing I would romanticise is pre-modern life. It was tough. You know, there was no anaesthetic. So it's not that I'm saying that we can ever go back or should go back. But if we look at systems of thought that are based around those values, the economy of nomads allows for the heightening of those values above other sorts of values. Where we are in the world now, we have access to so much information, it's not as if we have to go back to a primitive lifestyle to be able to get that information and think it through and come up with new ways of being in the world, some sort of syncretic vision. So no, I'm certainly not saying that we should chuck out all the good things that did come out of agriculture, obviously. But in terms of value systems, I think that's where we can gain such a lot from really listening to those previous ways of being in the world and particularly with environmentalism. So, for example, when I was traveling with the nomads in India, they wanted very much to have access to education for their daughters, for good medicine, all of the things that really should be everybody's by right. But they didn't want to give up. Their lifestyle in order to have those things. And the problem with governments is governments don't like nomads. You can't tax them. They're always sort of disappearing. You can't have power over them. You can't control them. And I think another reason why those sorts of cultures should be encouraged to continue the way they want to Mm -hmm. is that they're a great symbol of freedom. Whether they're free or not is sort of beside the point. They are a symbol of freedom, of being independent and able to cross boundaries and borders. And it's very important that those real cultures still embody those ways of being. And when you think about it, 10,000 years ago, all cultures were nomadic, all humans were nomadic. And the agricultural revolution has succeeded very well, because now I think it's point oh 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 one percent of the population is nomadic. And if that disappears as a way of being and a way of thinking about the world and a way of thinking about resources and about each other, then we've lost this very
0: potent, very powerful symbol about how humans can be and be different. So it seems like surrender is an important part of the conversation that we're having and the ability to accept that things are out of our control <laughs> and we need to welcome that in a bit more. When have you had to surrender? If you can, I'm sure many times the time oh, of your life. so many and, and
2: times. And of course, it's always difficult because it's our nature to want to cling and to make things predictable. We can't bear not knowing what's going to happen in five minutes because actually it's quite dangerous not knowing what's going to happen in five minutes. So we're evolutionarily designed to want to fix things and want to be certain. But that is not how nature works. It is simply not how nature is. And so philosophies that have developed around that understanding that it is not how nature is seem to me to have a better handle on how to be in the world. And, of course, we're not all Buddhist monks. We're not going to suddenly overcome these native inherent ways of being in the world, nor should we. But to keep coming back to the reality, to sort of struggle with life and then come back and realise actually it's all flux I think these are very healthy marks to make in one's own life and culturally. I'm not quite sure how you do that culturally. So for example, at one point in my life, I read a lot of classic Buddhist texts and I found that enormously helpful to me in just learning how to relax into my own life a bit better and to let go of some of that anxiety of constantly having to fix and solidify and control and just let it go a bit. I think it allows humans to evolve simply a better way of being in the world and with each other. Have you
0: ever been too comfortable being in a state of flux? Have you ever thought, I should have put... That's actually my four-year-old. I just need to flag. (laughs) That that might get louder. (laughs) But we're totally cool with being in a state of flux.
2: I must add here... You know, it's very easy for me to say all these things because I've never had children, and of course, we all know that once you have children, stability is what they require. But even then, I'm sure that the principles apply. Mm.
0: My permanent state is a state of flux, <laughs> <laughs> and yes. yes, surrender is my middle name. There you go. Indeed, but I, I totally dig your version. <laughs> But did you think that along the journey? I mean, it's true what you said about children and that primal need to nest and burrow Mm. and be safe, have continuity despite it all being an Mm. illusion to some degree. And I have been to mountains in Bhutan and climbed the highest heights and gone to the monastery built in the 11th century and met the monks and thought, Mm. I can't believe I'm saying this out loud, but I did think, dude, you don't know about surrender. Because, like, a monk on a mountain wasn't who I needed to turn to. No, quite. For the to guidance. To know how to deal with children first. <laughs> well, yes, that is true. <laughs> that was actually what I was thinking. Mm. I was like, chuck a couple of my children in this room and yeah. it will not be much um mm. Mm. happening. <laughs> But what you're talking about, I completely relate to and tracks, I understood because it's a part of human nature. It doesn't go away, that need to be free. But I reckon even more so, if I think about it, that need to be deeply, truly who we really are.
2: Well, I think that was probably the impulse behind it, of pulling myself together, of making an individual out of these extremely unprepossessing bits and pieces. And it did work for me. There was a time on that journey. Again, I hadn't been expecting it, but I was very lucky to have experienced it. After I'd been travelling with the old man, I don't know how many of you know this, but I'd spent a month with an old Aboriginal bloke, and that had sort of formed the heart of the journey for me. And then afterwards I had a month on my own in this physically difficult part. But something happened to me during that month, and the hard wiring just got changed. I don't think I've ever quite come back from it. And I tried to explain it in the book. I was very careful to keep away from the idea of mysticism because it was just reality. It's just what the mind does in that situation. It's just very straightforward. But it was a sort of change of consciousness, if you like. And I'm sure it was partly from being on my own and from walking every day and just being in that extraordinary expanse of desert. Well, the paradox was that It was the furthest I've ever been, literally, from other human beings, but the closest and most connected I've ever felt to the world, to other beings, to what is. And it was something to do with truly in the gut understanding that we are all part of a net and that we are connected, whether we like it or not, that's just how it is. And having that sensation, it hasn't stayed with me as a clear memory, but it stayed with me as a knowing that that's sort of the best way to be. And it's incredibly difficult, obviously, in this world where the whole world is about distraction. That's what it seems to be all about. And if there are moments even when we can get outside of that and really return to who we are and return to this sense of connectedness, of really being connected, like understanding that we really, really are connected, It's not sort of dominoes one after the other. It's a sort of net of dominoes, if you like. I don't know if that's relevant to the topic, but it's sort of in the same area or the same category of coming back to fundamental values and ways of facing reality where we're not constantly distracted from what is essentially an uncomfortable truth, which is
0: everything is flux. Does
2: that make sense? Yes.
0: (laughs) It's relevant to everything.
2: Yes, I wish I could remember it clearer. It would come in very handy.
0: I think it's very handy for all of us that you've had the experience. Yes,
2: maybe. I hope so. And told us about it. Well, I assume that we all have access. I mean, obviously, we're not going to go out and spend a month alone in a desert in order to get there. But it's really very important that we try and find ways in this culture, in this sort of crazy world, to remember that it's there, that it's possible and that it belongs to all of us. It's not just for monks and nuns, it's for all ordinary suffering folk.
0: (laughs) You said you wanted to stay away from mysticism when Mm. you talked about that. Mm. Why? Uh, I mistrust the idea, I suppose, that there's something
2: behind. It seems to me that life and matter and reality is so (laughs) utterly extraordinary is so weird that to pose an even weirder thing behind it, I don't need it. (laughs) And also, you know, I am passionately interested in science. I think that we're all rather ignorant about science, actually. We need to be more up to the mark with what's going on in various scientific fields. It's like
0: true wonder. Yes, true true wonder. Curiosity. Yes. Without making shit up. Yes. Exactly. In a way. Not be afraid of that.
2: And in fact, I think one of the reasons I love science and the rigour of science is that it is probably the best tool that we have for facing reality as it is. Just as Buddhism, possibly of the great philosophies, is the best one we have for facing reality as it actually is and not telling us ourselves stories that help us escape and go into fantasy or the big God or whatever,
0: the responsibility is right here with us. It's murky and wonderfully complex territory because we're going way off reservation here. But for some, the conversation around God and mysticism is around the experience you had, not having language for it, it being so big and vast and magical a possibility. So it's an interesting way that you frame it. I suppose in being
2: cautious around that word, I think the idea of mysticism is that it takes it out of the realm of the ordinary and therefore Mm. what is accessible to everybody. Mm. And whether you're an atheist or a believer or anything else, that way of being in the world, of being in reality, of being plugged in is available to you. For me personally, I'm an atheist. That's sort of irrelevant really. I don't think that Mm. matters. Mm. And whatever the mystical states are, they are states of mind and therefore they're there for everybody. So how
0: much do you listen to your instincts and how much do you follow your rational mind? Well, instincts are great, but they can be so wrong.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I like to think that I listen to my rational mind, but probably I'm much more led by instinct than I realise or than I know. But I strive, I try to use my mind to think through my own Instincts and emotional responses to things. and perhaps that's just a product of age, but I don't believe my emotions so well as I used to. Emotions lie. I'm very glad we have them, and they're wonderful things. to have emotions is the color of life. So it's great to have the emotion, which is the color, but then we've also got this wonderful tool, which is self-reflection and going, hang on a sec. Is that really real? Is that true? Do I really believe that? So, of course, the two things have to go hand in hand. Gee, we're getting into deep territory, aren't we? <laughs> well, I like to think that I am a rational being, but I'm very glad that I'm an emotional being. Do you still walk? You know, I have a bung knee. I have to get a new knee. But then I think, how lucky am I to live in this era when they have such things as new knees? <laughs> So come October, I'm going to have a whole new fresh knee and I'm going to be walking like you wouldn't believe.
0: I think if anyone deserves a new knee. (laughs) That's right. But, you know, of course I I would have to have a new knee. Yeah.
2: You know, after that. Of course that's what would happen. (laughs) But anyway, yes, I do feel very lucky that... I can get a new knee, and yes, I do intend to walk a great deal. In fact, the last few years, coming back to Australia and setting up a home and doing all those things, the walking has fallen off a bit. And I do think walking and philosophy go Mm. hand in hand. Something happens to your mind when you're walking. Two
0: questions on that. Mm. Where do you walk or how do you walk when you've got a bung knee? How do you find your nourishment and your meditation and how do you journey when you can't physically? It really has
2: been quite challenging because I so took it for granted. My mobility was just who I am. And to suddenly be held up by something, ooh, I didn't like that much. But on the other hand, I can still garden and I can travel in my head. And indeed, of course, part of the process of getting older is dealing with all of that, not for sissies. So I'd say another very important aspect of thinking philosophically, if you like, is preparing for our own deaths and how we do that. I mean, it's such a banal thing, but probably the biggest thing any of us are going to have to face. So I find getting older absolutely fascinating and sort of hilarious, terrible and funny. What thoughts have you had about death? Well, I oscillate between just unspeakable dread and thinking, millions of people have done it, it can't be that hard. (laughs) I would like to prepare for my death. I would like to prepare myself to be able to confront it with full conscious knowing. I suppose that's what I would like. We're coming into an era when... Death is not such a physically painful experience. So again, we're very lucky to live in this era where even such a grand thing as death can be confronted without too much physical pain to distract us from the process, I guess. Yes, I think growing towards one's death is a very sensible thing.
0: Spooky, though. In what ways are you still testing the boundaries of who you are? Sometimes I take a break. But most of the time,
2: it is a test, I think. I assume that everyone is like this, but for me, life is just so improbable. I mean, it's just so totally improbable and mysterious and full of wonder. And and I'd love to live till I'm 120. I don't care if I'm an eyeball on a pillow. As long as (laughs) I can get more of the story, because it's just so extraordinary and remarkable and weird. And we never stop learning. It's one of the great gifts that I've got is this love of learning. And I know that until I die, I'll be reading and thinking and wondering and struggling and going up and down and being engaged in life, however ghastly it is at times. It's what a trip. Really, really, what a trip.
0: Have you always been like that? I think I have always
2: been like that, yes. Well, look, my mother suicided when I was little and it wasn't so much her death, but something that happened, I've been trying to write about it in this memoir I'm writing, terribly difficult to write about. I must've been about 12 and I had this sort of nihilistic vision. I sort of understood that there was no solid ground anywhere and that there was no such thing as a solid entity person No such thing as a solid object tree. All was just this chaos of energies. And in a sense, overcoming the nihilism of that vision has given me tremendous fuel in my life. So, however unlucky it was, it was also very lucky. How did you overcome it? Well, by thinking and reading and listening to what other people have, and of course, by throwing myself into situations where I have to pull myself together. I have to be there. So, yes, it's sort of study, I guess, is what I'd say. The study of what other people have done, but also putting myself in situations where I have to grow.
0: What does the next chapter for you
2: look like? Well, I think being a sedentary person is looking like how it might be. I love how you talk
0: about that, the way we talk about the nomadic life.
2: Well, it sort of is very demanding being in one place and having to sort of root yourself in a place and I'm having to accept change in things like my garden. You cannot control a garden. So that's a sort of life lesson as well, just trying to deal with having a garden. Um, at the moment, I'm very taken up with writing a book and when that's done, I have no idea. Clearly, I have no idea.
0: Robin, you're wonderful. I think it's time to open up for your questions.
2: Thank you, Robin. How different do you think your journey with Camels might have been if you were blogging en route and constantly feeding an audience frenzy? Well, exactly. You know, people say, would you ever do such a thing again? And the point is that that era when what I did was possible is completely gone. These days, it's pretty much illegal to get lost. And I think I just caught the cusp of it, of being able to go underneath the radar. It had its difficulties, you know, the cops in Alice Springs didn't want me to go. So there are all those sorts of blocks and barriers. But I didn't have the GPS, the satellite phone, the blogging, the constant sort of gnawing like rats of people needing to know, needing to know, needing to know, needing to know.
1: <laughs>
2: so I think anyone wanting to do such a journey now would face a whole completely new species of problem, and one of the problems they'd face is not being allowed to get lost. Hi, Robin. Hi. Um, I noticed in your book that you talked about yourselves and how that different parts of you reacted to different situations in tracks, you mean?
0: Yeah, yeah. And I'm wondering how those different parts of yourself, yourselves, have evolved over time. And how you've come to see the gifts of parts of you that might not be as accepted in society, but are part of us all.
2: Well, frankly, there's so many Robin Davidsons out there that I lose count. I can't keep control of them all. It's a very complicated question to answer because the self is a slippery beast and self deceit is just such a huge part of the human mind. So I think, as I said, what I try to do with those bits of myself that either I don't like or other people don't like is just look at them and try and work out to what extent I need them, to what extent they're really part of me, to what extent they're cultural sort of memes. But it's a full-time occupation, keeping that rational over-self, keeping the other bits of you honest by that rational over-self, I guess. I mean, that's the other thing that, you know, I've made such huge, humongous mistakes. So it's not like it's easy. It's not easy. I just believe in the process. And once you've got that as an idea or as an ideal, then you find ways of keeping yourself honest, I guess. As I said before, I found Buddhist philosophy very useful for that because it's cold comfort. It doesn't let you off the hook if you study it properly. But that willingness, that courage to look at reality as it is and look at the self really objectively is a fantastic skill to try to develop.
0: Reluctantly, Robin, we have to close this evening, but it has been an immense honour and on behalf of all of us here, thank you so much. Very, thank you. Really lovely. Thank you.
1: Thanks for being with us on this episode of the Dumbo Feather podcast. You can check out our latest issue of the magazine titled Treasured Spaces over at dumbofeather.com or news agencies and specialty stores. The Dumbo Feather podcast is produced on the lands of the Woiwurrung people of the Kulin Nations. We acknowledge traditional owners of this country and elders past and present. Our partners on this episode are Australian Ethical and they are doing great things to ensure our money matters and to remind us that the power to create a better world for future generations is in our hands. You can learn more about them at australianethical.com.au. Bye for now.